From Studio H3 in the Current Affairs World Headquarters, it's Current Affairs, your ear's greatest hour of politics and culture. Today on the program, we discuss whether demanding that opponents be fired is good strategy, hear a dispatch from Michigan about the Abdul for Governor campaign, and each share our most conservative opinions. Our panel today, Current Affairs Amusements Editor, Lyda Gold. Current Affairs Finance Editor, Sparky Abraham. Hello. Current Affairs Legal Editor, Oren Nimney. Hi, everyone. And Current Affairs Contributing Editor, Brianna Joy Gray. Hi, guys. I'm your host, Pete Davis. We begin with segment one, Practical Tactical. In the recurring segment, Practical Tactical, we discuss different tactics and strategies being used in the political fights of the late 2010s and whether we think they are good, useful, moral, and effective. This week, we discuss the tactic of getting the other guy fired. Calling the other side's manager and demanding a pink slip is in vogue these days on both sides of the political divide. Progressive activists have gotten the following people fired. Mozilla CEO Brendan Eich for donating to Prop 8, Google engineer James Damore for making a sexist PowerPoint, CVS managers, Charlottesville alt-right marchers, and Roseanne for being racist, and more. Conservative activists have gotten Bill Maher fired for being insensitive after 9-11, the Dixie Chicks sort of fired for being right about the war in Iraq, USDA official Shirley Sherrod fired fired for being part of an unfairly edited video, and forced a New Yorker fact-checker to resign for briefly misidentifying innocuous agent tattoos as Nazi-themed. What do we think of this tactic? Is it, as the activist lingo goes, good praxis? Or is it an inappropriate weaponizing of labor hierarchies? Is it even effective, or is it a fool's game? Panel, what do we think? I don't care for it. (laughs) Neither do I. (laughs) And why is that? With some caveats. I think first and foremost, in a world in which one's uh, ability to receive health care is tied to their employer, there's an ethical dimension in getting people fired that it's difficult to get around. But in a world where that weren't the case, I still think that there's an argument that it's problematic if you don't have articulable standards for why you think certain people should be fired that don't make it so that you could easily be the victim of that same kind of thinking if you don't think it's fair, like presuming that we don't think at least some of the left leaning actors in that list that you just read off should have been fired, then I need us to be able to establish a rule that if applied would let those people off the hook, or at least those people who we think were unjustly fired while still getting rid of the bad guys. And I haven't heard that yet, although I'm interested in trying to drill down on it. Yeah, I think trying to develop that rule could be an interesting project of the left. I also am not in favor of it, largely because of the way that workplace hierarchies work currently. I think I might have a different opinion in a world where workplaces were worker-controlled democracies, but where workplaces are controlled by bosses with intense hierarchies and the reasons for hiring, the reasons for firing people are therefore dependent on that kind of, you know, whatever really the boss wants and that kind of power imbalance. I think in general, I'm not in favor of people being fired even for things that I might find personally odious. Now, that doesn't mean that the thing that someone's doing is right. It just means that I don't think that the consequence of the boss being able to fire you, you losing your wage and your health care is, is a just one. And I don't think it's one that we can really reasonably advocate you know we can't really it's it's hard to advocate like yes that person should get fired or yes that person must be like made to do their job when 
resistance at the workplace has actually been the provenance of the left for a really long time. And a lot of the people that you're talking about, Pete, you know, were fired, but the the main people, you know, as a, far as a factual matter, the main people that get fired for workplace speech, despite legal restrictions, are people that are trying to unionize their coworkers. Yeah, in some ways, it's interesting to be weaponizing a hierarchy we don't believe in for our cause. Like, here's a goofy equivalent I could think of that I don't, I haven't heard of in the real world, but it's an interesting hypo. What if there were women speaking out it for some conservative cause, and we all got on Twitter and said? Let's call their husbands and tell them to <laughs> shut up. You know, <laughs> like that's weaponizing the like gender hierarchy for the sake of our cause. You know, but a gender hierarchy they believe in—that's actually kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your most conservative belief? <laughs> well, okay, just to complicate it a bit, I'll throw something in there. Let's take an extreme example, like the alt-right Charlottesville marchers who are not powerful. So not Richard Spencer, but like random guy eight rows down in the Charlottesville Tiki Torches who works at a, you know, computer fixing place in Arizona. And someone else at their workplace feels uncomfortable being at work with someone who was at the Charlottesville March. How does that compl- That's part of the complication. It's that they want to preserve like a safe working environment. So when I think about rules, and I think we talked about this briefly on Twitty at one point in the context of James Damore, the rule that I think is the clearest is the one that says if you are in a supervisory capacity over someone and your bigotry would have a direct bearing on your ability to supervise them fairly and make them feel like they're in a or make them feel like they're in a hostile work environment and not just flippantly. Right. Because I, I personally think, yeah, a Nazi in a room with me is a hostile work environment, but I don't know that we can make it quite that cut and dry. But if there's, I think the supervisory capacity metric is a good one. Because if you have some ability to have control over somebody else's job and somebody else's employment, then I can't say I want to protect your right to have insurance and to have a wage. But I'm going to have no respect for all of the, let's say, people of color under you that are subject to being fired because of your bigotry. In the James DeMore instance, you know, you could have, I don't know that he had supervisory capacity, but I could see a world in which he was simply kind of removed from people because it didn't seem like his job function was particularly involved working with a lot of different people all the time. But if you're a manager, maybe you just have to be demoted. Maybe that means you, you kind of self, self-deport, <laughs> self-fire. <laughs> um, or, you know, decide to work somewhere else because you're just not having any fun anymore. Or you're like kind of put in one of those you know, classrooms, watching TV all day, like the teachers. <laughs> People say you can't fire teachers, and so they end up... The, kind of the rubber that. room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if something like that has to be developed, which people kind of self-deport from because it's so unpleasant. I mean, it seems like the the sort of rule that you're talking about is, like, how related is your problem or whatever you're being questioned for to the actual job that you do, right? And I think I kind of agree with that. And and it's kind of the same thing where supervisors, like a lot more is related to your role because you are actually in charge of other people and in charge of making sure they feel comfortable and are not like discriminated against or abused or retaliated against or whatever. I mean, I do think that, what was her name? Kim Davis. Kim Davis was the, after gay marriage was passed with Obergefell, she refused to grant marriage licenses. In that kind of situation, it does seem like what she's doing is extremely work-related, right? It's her job to issue marriage licenses, and she's not issuing marriage licenses. And I think 
I'm okay with her being fired for that. And it's not necessarily because I think a court is never going to order someone to do something that's wrong when they're a civil servant in that job. But I think that the fact that you can be fired for adhering to your beliefs is kind of what makes it an effective protest to not do that. I'm not sure I would want a world where like Kim Davis and also whoever lefty gets to like violate a court order where for as long as they want without getting fired in order to express their beliefs. Like if there's a court order, you have to follow it or else you can get fired. And if you think it's wrong, then you basically get fired out of protest. I mean, that seems okay. I guess a not quite analogous situation is uh, the Red Head restaurant refusing to serve Sarah Huckabee Sanders for ideological reasons. And then, you know, do, do they have a right, essentially, is do they have a right not to do their job for political reasons? Yeah, like if it wasn't the owner, but if it was a server. Or right, something. right. Um, in that case, it was the whole restaurant agreeing to do it. But, you know, people are still trying to get them shut down. A version of being fired. Yeah. I mean, are, are boycotts a version? I don't think a boycott is really a version of being fired. Uh, that seems like a different thing. Yeah, I agree. It's not manipulating that same hierarchy we were talking about before. Right. Yeah, I feel like an effect on businesses as opposed to people is, is slightly different, even though, you know, uh, for small businesses. Right, because the effect particular. would be the same if they were shut down. Right. If they were forced I to mean, close for no business, they would all be fired. Yeah, but you can also make a broader appeal, though. It's not one person who can fire. It's like if everyone in D.C. basically decides to support this restaurant because they agree, it's it's a, it's a, it's a call to, like, the broader cultural feeling about you as opposed to relying on one manager that you happen to disagree with politically that's true but when it comes to uh when it comes to people being fired for tweets they make um you know because maybe they said something that was offensive and then the the company fires them the company is protecting their interests from the larger cultural feeling Mm -hmm. that's true by getting rid of somebody i don't know i'm really i'm really not in favor of firing people for like bad tweets because like if we fired people for bad tweets we have to fire every person on the planet. On their That's true. Were you online before 2010? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then then you're, you're automatically fired. No, I, and I also think that, once again, while we're in this particular state where jobs mean often quite a bit to your livelihood and your, your ability to get health care, that I've always felt like the position of the left should be very similar to what, I, what we would want the position of the left to be uh, regarding incarceration, that there, that rather than removing someone from from a position in most cases that the the ideal thing would be to have some sort of restorative process and i would love to you know as a as a middle ground i would love to see a world where like the government put money into having that be a thing like we spend a lot of our time at workplaces and rather than having like a bullshit diversity training that like you know you could imagine a world where we both don't think that people should get fired but don't also don't like the fact that a low-level non-supervisory employee is making everyone else feel like shit because they're a terrible person. And we kind of want to figure out a way to deal with that without making it so like their family can't eat. Orin's most conservative position is, let's restore James Damore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start up the chance. <laughs> what do we think about Roseanne, by the way? Well, that that I think is a different... It, so the the caveat that I feel like I kind of have, and I don't know, if, I don't think that this is a principled caveat, but maybe you all can figure out how to work it into a principle because you're much better at this than I am. But I don't feel like I have the same immediate empathy, nor the same um, material reason for people like Roseanne, people who are extremely wealthy and have many other employment options and have a you know large wealth basis from which they can draw, I don't feel the same. Because it's not the same impact, I don't feel the same. Like, for example, if someone 
who had a whole like large stockpile of weapons sent an all caps tweet at some sort of country that had another large stockpile of weapons maybe that person would get fired i don't know if that happened hypothetically well, this, is, this is a really interesting thing so like a, as a as a job gets more powerful it becomes less of like a job and it becomes more of a like political battleground cuz like we all want donald trump to be fired and then let's go down one like we want mike pence to be fired we want jeff sessions to be fired we want the head of abc or Netflix or Facebook, so we're now exiting politics. But not be because they've, they've not because they've said something racist or like done something that like makes us feel squicky. It's because they do have supervisory control over the entire mm-hmm. country. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But but okay. That, I mean, I think yeah, that's like, that's Roseanne, super fair. Roseanne but Roseanne has- doesn't. She doesn't have that much. No, she has supervisory control over 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. on ABC, (laughs) which is a powerful thing. Like, that's a huge piece of supervisory control. Over our minds. Her employees weren't saying, oh, I think Roseanne's treating me badly or I feel uncomfortable in this workplace because Roseanne's a racist. These are people who've known Roseanne for 30 years, you know, who grew up with Roseanne. And I don't know about the writers or what their feelings were and stuff like that. But the Roseanne situation, as much as I find her to be personally offensive, it weighs on me because her tweet was racist and dumb, but like hardly surprising given everything that we know about her politics. It wasn't, it, it seems like the, the, the studio was able to say after the fact, oh, we're going to draw a line in a way that seemed very superficial given what we all knew about her before the case. It's probably the worst thing I know about Roseanne. Besides which I have weird feelings about Roseanne given that she used to be a lefty <laughs> and also like yeah. people talk about like mental illness, not wanting to subscribe everything that everybody does to mental illness, but she legitimately had like a traumatic, traumatic brain injury at like age 18 and her entire personality changed. You know about this? No. Yeah. Oh. She used to be like some very conservative religious sect, like a Mormon or something. I want to say uh, fact check me, Pete <laughs> at the end, <laughs> but then had a, <laughs> <laughs> but had a, had this traumatic brain injury and completely changed and then went off to Hollywood to like live her life. And it seems like has had very, uh, un- kind of unstable swings politically and personally throughout the rest of her life. So th- this this whole thing just seems like the idea, like we're reading so much into the tweet about Valerie Jarrett that I don't know if there's a there there. And it does seem, it does, I think it looks bad from the left. It's, it feels a little pretextual given all the bad things that she said before, all the bad things other people say. But then to have the most popular show in the country, to be a conservative show, all of us to have feelings about it and then to fire her for this reason... Uh, yeah, yeah. Like it's, in some ways, firing like it's political ground. If our complaint was about the content of the television show, right? Like then that's a political fight. Like we want to win more airtime and TV guide or whatever. But if it's about her for something she did outside the television show to like get fired, that's not politics as much. I don't know. Yeah. What do others think? I don't know. Like. Yeah, the tweet, I don't even think, I, I mean, I can't remember any others, but I, I remember thinking that was not even her most racist tweet. <laughs> right. It has other extremely racist tweets. So yeah, like it's a little bit pretextual, but also I kind of think that if you're going to be, if you're going to agree to be the face of sort of a, a major like American cultural item, you are going to be held account f- to account for your speech in ways that you wouldn't necessarily if you didn't have that sort of power and sway, right? So it's like partly supervisory power, but it's also just kind of like being out there in the public power. And she seems more like 
an, like an executive of ABC or whatever, then she seems like a sort of employee, even if she doesn't have a whole lot of power and control over the company and the employees, just because she's sort of like the public face. And like the pretextualness of it, I mean, it bothers me in that they didn't they didn't do something about her sooner. They gave her a show in the first place, but it does that doesn't make it seem wrong to me to fire her for that. Like that was still a fireable tweet. It just probably should have happened with an earlier tweet or like the show should never have come back because she was, she's bad. So what about the lefty version of the firing tweets? Hasn't there, wasn't there just the guy, was it the Thor guy, Thor Ragnarok guy who got James, James a bunch Gunn. Of, yeah. Yeah. So what happened with him? I didn't read all of those tweets, but weren't they about, were they as bad? Were they fireable? So this is actually my question. So so this guy James Gunn. So ten years ago, he did all these like sort of shock jock kind of uh, jokes on Twitter that are really really bad, really unfunny jokes about pedophilia and rape. And then he went on to be a successful director. And then he got fired when these tweets resurfaced. And these tweets were resurfaced by uh, Mike Cernovich, who is a completely disingenuous piece of shit, who tries to, you know, made up Pizzagate and is just trying to accuse everybody on the left of pedophilia. And James Gunn coincidentally critiques Donald Trump a lot and, and, you know, tweets at him and has like a big platform. So that's why he was checked out for this. So the question is, maybe some tweets like Roseanne's tweet were fireable, but is there... I'm going to use a legal term. Oh, my God, you guys. Is there a statute of limitations on on when that extends to? But, like, this is perfect for Oren's point, right? Which is, like, everybody is redeemable. Like, Mm. I mean, if you, if, if Roseanne does, if James Gunn, or was it James Gunn? Gunn. If whoever doesn't want to get fired for their tweets in 2010, then, like, apologize for them in a real way that sort of accounts for Mm -hmm. how they affected people and, like, why they are wrong and completely disavows them. And if Roseanne did that um, in a meaningful way and also didn't have years and years and years of tweeting the exact same racist (laughs) shit, like, I might feel differently. But, like, that seems to me to be the key. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's redeemable, but actually, uh, Brie on on Swody, like a long time, not that long ago, a while ago. You're going to unearth something she said? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Something good. Like, had a a similar statute of limitations question, I think, around... Me too stuff. Around Me Too stuff. Yeah. And, and that there is a real question of, you know, okay, is there a point at which, you know, the, the sort of taint of Roseanne, of 10-year-old tweets uh, by gun can be can be cleansed? And I, I didn't read, I, I didn't pay attention to this very much, but I did read like some small part of his apology, which I don't think was this, this sort of restorative thing that we would all envision, but did sort of explain like, look... I was at this point in my career where I was just sort of saying really shocking things to get attention. Like I didn't mean those things like that, that was super inappropriate. And that's what I was doing at that point. You know Um, I, I think it's a little, you know, I, I don't think that that's all we would want, but how, you know, there's a time there's, there seems like there's should be some sort of temporal limit and some sort of action that you can take you know, beyond which things should not be able to destroy your life, life again and again. Uh, yeah, it was episode four of Swoti. <laughs> we were talking about Birth of a Nation and Nate Parker, and it was a very controversial subject when I brought it up at the time, this restorative uh, justice issue. It was before Me Too, and I was making the argument, you know, like, I, we, can, we can ban Nate Parker, who had um, raped someone in the late 90s. We can ban him from humanity, but is that our end goal and all these situations like if our end goal isn't to ban these people forever for humanity then we have to have a conversation no matter how difficult about what it takes for them to be re-included and for us to feel comfortable consuming their artistic products 
and kind of working and living with them again. And it's not letting people off the hook. It's about thinking about what we actually want from human beings as opposed to just thinking punitively. And I think in a lot of different contexts, we'd all be benefited from doing that. On that note, let's go to break. It's not an easy thing to admit and a tougher thing to fight. It can be so embarrassing to realize you've been wrong. But ask yourself the hard questions. Have you found yourself constantly getting in the way of social progress just so you can tell marginalized people to slow down and be reasonable? Do you still believe in the meritocracy myth even though you're an adult? Do you insist we have to hear both sides, even when one of those sides is lousy with billionaire robber barons and literal Nazis? Be honest. Have you hit rock center? Good news! There's hope. At the Center for Actual Progress, we offer a 12-step program for recovering centrists. At our weekly meetings, we'll help you follow the 12 simple life-affirming steps that will lead you out of the abyss of self-satisfied elitist despair and into genuine left progressivism. The steps include things like acknowledging that America never was already great, accepting that many people aren't stupid, depraved, and irredeemable, even if they live in (gasps) middle America. Realizing that human value isn't reducible to numbers, and that there's no amount of human suffering that can be considered palatable for the greater good. Don't wait. If you want to make the world a better place, and not just revel in your self-perception as the wise, pragmatic, moderate intellectual oppressed on all sides by howling hysterics, then call 504-867-8851. That's 504-867-8851. And find a Center for Actual Progress in your area today. We're back with segment two, Dispatches from the Front. In Dispatches from the Front, we leave the safety and comfort of the current affairs world headquarters to visit the front lines (laughs) of the political moment. Today, Editor-in-Chief Nathan J. Robinson is in Michigan covering Abdul El-Sayed, lefty gubernatorial candidate who is making waves. Bernie, Ocasio-Cortez, and even Ben Affleck are backing this public (laughs) health expert who is pushing for Medicare for All in Michigan, a $15 minimum wage, ending right to work, legalizing pot, and internet for all. He is part of a wave of progressives running this year. Of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the Bronx, Kanyela Ng in Hawaii, Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout in New York statewide, and Carrie Harris fighting Tom Carper in Delaware. Before we patch Nathan in, any thoughts on this group of exciting insurgents? I, yeah, it's really exciting. It's, I mean, it's exciting how uh, I've never been excited by electoral politics, but like I watched some video of of uh, uh, of Abdul, you know, give a speech, and I was like, "Oh wow, you both know what you're talking about, like really in a detailed, policy oriented way, and are extremely." inspiring and i like the way that you say michiganders yes. that, that is what we say. um and i also really like the diversity of the candidates in in all senses sort of economically racially but also geographically you know hawaii to to the bronx so um it's it, it's cool and it's encouraging and i'm glad that we're gonna have uh some you know on the ground reporting i hope we'll have a good sound of like a yeah, to, to Oren's point, is, I think that geographic diversity point is actually bigger than just kind of like 
the optics of it when when Ocasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders were in Kansas last weekend. Uh, one of the things that Ocasio Cortez kept saying was, you know, they said so. When the, you know, this issue, they said it wasn't a Kansas issue. But whether you're in the Bronx or Kansas or Vermont, we these are all things we're all dealing with, and that I think is the root of starting to piece together this broad-based working-class coalition. Um, and the, all the people who got on the television after Ocasio Cortez went one and started talking about how these issues don't translate, those people are the enemy of that class project. <laughs> They're like the explicit. <laughs> in, in, me up against the wall (laughs) and we should ignore them and banish them and may or may not maybe not rehabilitate them (laughs) yeah i mean it does like this whole process does make it it makes me feel a lot less cynical which is a really nice feeling i feel like i've just been so cynical for so long about elected officials in a way that like is both hurtful to myself and also really annoying to people around me (laughs) but like i feel (laughs) i feel like a little bit melted by these candidates and it's really nice yeah my favorite part about ing too is he's uh he's anti-imperialist which yeah, is like his Bernie, whole campaign Bernie video has a foreign policy. So. His whole campaign video has like a Hawaii was colonized. Yes, like, yes. Thing. Yeah, and I was like, yes. <laughs> Facts. Yeah. So I am actually a Michigan native. Um, woo. Woo. I've been living in New York for 12 years, though. Okay. I'm one of those I'm one of those horrible Midwestern transplants you've been reading about. <laughs> well, and, and it's it's exciting to see like Michigan in the news. And like this is like a broad like countrywide thing but like michigan has like particular needs and is like a really good testing ground for like these kinds of policies because the state is in terrible trouble and has been for a long time because like the um the great recession was really like a depression there which is like a reason a lot of people left it wasn't because they thought brooklyn was cool <laughs> um, they actually just like needed to get out yeah and like uh rick snyder the republican governor really devastated the state uh betsy devos in her role as a, a charter school advocate really ruined um Michigan's education system, which used to be really good. Recently um, yachtless Secretary of Education. <laughs> well, she still has nine more yachts, so <laughs> she's going to be okay. Yeah, so it's this is it's a place that really, really needs some serious progressive ideas and some real big changes. And um, I really hope Abdul does well. I'm rooting for him. My family's voting for him. Woo-hoo. Go blue. On that note. Go blue. Let's, uh, let's patch in Nathan. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Pete. Where are you calling us from? I am calling you from beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan, home of the the one of the fine uh, the fine University of Michigan. And what has brought you to Michigan? What has brought me to Michigan is the campaign of uh, Abdul El Sayed in the Michigan uh, gubernatorial. Prime Democratic primary, and I have been following the Abdul El Sayed campaign around the state all weekend, uh, from Grand Rapids to Flint to Detroit to Ypsilanti to Ann Arbor. What uh, for our listeners who don't know who Abdul is or the Abdul yeah. for Governor campaign? Uh, right. Tell us what how you found out about him. And what got you excited enough to to fly out to Michigan? So I think so. Abdul is a thirty um, three year old uh, doctor from Michigan, and he was the former he- head of the Detroit Health Department. Well, actually, he was appointed to the Detroit Health Department when there was no Detroit Health Department. They sort of disbanded the apart- department, and his job was to rebuild uh, the department, uh, which he did very successfully. And he 
he's a really, really interesting guy because you know people focus on the fact that that he is you know if he if he wins he will be the first Muslim candidate for a, uh, a governor in the country for a major party. But much more interesting is the fact that Abdul is. He's so he's a Sanders progressive leftist, you know, he's running on Medicare for all, abolish ICE, and yet he is also he's been compared I think the Guardian compared him to Barack Obama because he is just a phenomenal speaker and an incredibly charismatic person. So he's he's incredibly accomplished, he's got like two doctorates, um uh you know, he, he did the Detroit Health Department in 2 years, but He's got this weird mixture of radical progressivism and kind of political skill and pragmatism. And you see it on, on the campaign trail because he's, he puts out, he, he takes these progressive ideas, these like very strong lefty ideas, and he does, he puts out long policy documents explaining exactly how he's going to implement them. And for, he, for, he, for the Vox constituency. For the Vox constituency, but he also gives really uplifting amazing speeches uh, that just captivate everybody in the room. Oh my gosh, the perfect mix. I also like that, you know, we don't have enough politicians that are coming from a public bureaucracy background. Like, um, having run an entity, like, the big right-wing thing to say is, we want, like, a businessman to run this country, but really, like, I I think a nice left-wing one would be, like, wouldn't it be nice if someone who actually was involved in a public bureaucracy before could run the full public bureaucracy? This is true. Well, one thing that I love about him is that he's just so openly uh, contemptuous of this idea of, like, running government like a business. So I think at one debate, someone said, well, I, you know... I've uh, I've run businesses, so I know how to run a government. And a- Abdul replied, he goes, well, I've never run a business, but I've fought businesses all my life. <laughs> like, and uh, but the thing, but he also talks about how I, w- I was talking to him yesterday, and I-, I asked him, well, you know, the oldest story in the world is of the guy who wants to change the system and then gets in and then finds that the system puts constraints on him that he's unable to do to enact his you know his radical agenda and you know how are you going to how are you going to have that not happen and abdul's answer was well i i know how the governor's office works i want to and the first thing I want to do is use what the governor's office can do to improve people's experiences with government. And this made me so happy because he's talking about how people interact with the government and the fact that they have miserable experiences with the government. And he said, one thing you can do at the, at the margins is you can make sure that people just have better experiences when they have to interact with the state. And I asked him about running the Detroit Health Department and, and you know, if a, it was an underfunded bureaucracy. What do you, what do, you do to make sure that, it, that people are... And he said, well, we focused on the things that we could win. So in the Detroit Health Department, he focused on a program to give glasses, free glasses to every Detroit public school student because it was a thing they could do. There were students that couldn't... There were plenty of poor kids who couldn't see the blackboard and they couldn't afford glasses. So Amazing. the Detroit... 
the Detroit Health Department and did a free glasses program because he said that's a thing they could do. He said they could do the you know they tested for the the they tested the school water for lead. They they picked things that even with this tiny understaffed underfunded organization uh, were possible and that people would see results. Now, let's get to the brass tacks of this. Is Abdul going to win the primary? I I think so. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard for me to say because I've only been watching... If you only watch his campaign, you would say absolutely because the enthusiasm of... He has just an, this army of young people who are... And the, the rallies that he has... Uh, the, at, the, at the beginning of the rally, the uh, speaker comes out and goes... Um, you know, are you all ready to elect Abdul? And a thousand people go, yeah! And then they go, well, okay. Well, how many of you are going to do ten shifts in the next ten days knocking on doors for Abdul? And a bunch of people stand up and then they go, how many of you are going to do nine shifts? And then they get, you know, they go down until one shift. Well, how many of you could do just one shift? And then nearly everyone is standing. And then they hand Oh, out that's the amazing. Volunteer- and then they hand out the volunteer forms. So everyone you talk to about who's who knows this is so the, the complicated thing is that Abdul is kind of unknown and he's not got nearly as much money as the other candidates he's refusing corporate money so he has a real uphill battle uh the the his opponent just dropped i think another $700,000 on television advertising oh, gosh. for the next 10 okay. days and he's got nothing like that he's amazingly compelling to people who have heard him. I have a, there is a total Hillary bro in my town centrist who is making calls for Abdul right now because he just heard a speech by him and and it was, it's changed his feeling about everything. Yeah. You, you see Abdul, you love, you just fall in love with Abdul because um, he's just, and he's just an incredibly, I mean, I I spent time just sort of hanging out with him and he's, he's, you're like, where did this guy come from? Because he's all of the things that on the left, we're like, he's got the Obama qualities, uh, as I say, of, you know, being really appealing and, and having the inspiration. But also he was very critical of Obama. When I was talking to him on the bus, he's like, well, you know, I actually think Democrats have to fight. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> Final thing, did they did Abdul know about current affairs before you talked to him? Oh, of course Abdul knew about current affairs. Oh, great. That's wonderful to hear. Oh, okay. Yes. Current affairs I... is in the hands of the future of the left. Yeah, Abdul loves current <laughs> affairs. This is why I got to ride on the bus <laughs> with Abdul because he uh he had read our stuff and his policy director loves our article because we're the only ones that wrote about their healthcare plan. And his policy director is this amazing woman and she's like writing all these plans and nobody reads them or writes about them. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, let's hear about this. So this is one of the great debates on the left. Should we have state level Medicare for all like state level single single payer? Or is that too much of a risk? Because, you know, a state level plan is is, is more shaky. So what what's your feeling on his Michigan well, Medicare for all plan? The thing is that I yeah, I don't have an answer on whether 
you know, I, I'm compelled by both sides of that. People have good arguments for why state-level Medicare for All won't work. The thing is that I sort of trust Abdul when he says it's worth going for because Abdul is a public health scholar. He's a doctor. He was a professor at Columbia Medical School. He's published 80 articles on, on public health policy. <laughs> he, the, the MishCare plan looks really comprehensive. I, I, I like... I, I, the way I see it is, if Abdul says it can be done, I kind of want him to try because he knows more about healthcare policy than anyone else in the country. Yeah, it, 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 it'd be nice to get to a day where we can tell uh, the the conservatives on this, like, yes, yes, it's interesting that you have your healthcare plan, but we have to real be realistic and listen to the experts <laughs> and go with the state level single player plan. The other thing is, he said because he told me because of his um, because of who he is, because he's a thirty three year old Muslim, he said he had to make up for the experience gap with a credibility gap where he would just be so much more credible than his opponents by having like fifty pages of documentation <laughs> for everything he said. Yeah, how is that uh, Arab American angle uh, playing in in the electorate? Is there any is there any concern about lingering? You know, Obama got accused of being a Muslim and spent many time much of his yeah. uh, much of his uh, time in office ensuring people don't worry i'm not a muslim what what happens when someone's actually a muslim uh, abdul's muslim and well i think it works really well abdul goes all around michigan not just to the cities um he goes to the rural areas and he says he gets a good reception people he says he's very upfront with people about 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 who he is and what his faith is and it hasn't been an issue for him he says it's more of an issue actually among people in the democratic party who say things like, well, I, I would support him, I support him, but Michigan is not ready, Michigan is too prejudiced, Michigan will never elect him. We so just need to have one election where everyone is just like, please vote how you want to vote, not how you predict <laughs> others will vote, and let's just see what happens. <laughs> well, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell here got into hot water with her Muslim constituency because she said exactly this. She said, I think Michigan is too prejudiced, and she endorsed Abdul's opponent. <laughs> Well, that should get her mad at uh, at at by her Muslim constituency, but also by other Michiganders. What? Where's her faith in them? Well, that's the that's the thing. She so she led in real hot water. The funny thing is that now she's trying to make it up to 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 the, all the Muslims she angered. So she went. She was go, she went to Abdul's events yesterday, and it's interesting because she endorsed his opponents and uh, his, his opponent uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, but she was at his event and she was clapping and she looked very enthusiastic. And uh, there's been some suggestion that she's. Uh, uh, she's a, a little more of a, a closet Abdul supporter than, um, uh, than 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 she lets on. And what day is the primary for August our listeners? 7th. Who August, August 7th. seventh? And and listeners. So my my friend in False Church has been calling, making calls for Abdul. I saw a picture that Ocasio's offices are now being used to make calls for Abdul. So current affairs listeners can make calls for Abdul. I assume. And they also they do need money because they're trying to compete with some of this television advertising. One of the saddest things I saw when I was there is this process where uh, candidates have to just do nothing but make calls to donors. Now oh, yes, Abdul's yeah. not making. He's not taking corporate money, but he still has to call the people who've donated, you know, $800 and ask them if they'll donate another $1,000. And he, I watched him in the office 
uh, on the phone doing this, and there's just a, an automatic dialer, and it dials one, and then he goes, "Hi, I'm Abdul. I'm running for company." And he goes, "He goes, sorry to bother you. Sorry to bother you." And uh, he asks, oh, "But but could you give a little more?" And you know, the first two I watched, he didn't get anything, and then he got someone who donated a little more, and he spends thirty five to forty hours a week just making. Donor calls. Yeah, in other systems, they even go around the like giving everyone money to donate, and they just say we're going to give you each airtime, and everyone gets this amount of commercials if you're on the ballot, and that would solve it because so much of this is commercials. That's why people need the money, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not. It's not like printing costs. It's and, it's it's mostly his, TV. His two opponents. One is a self-funded millionaire businessman who's put about twelve million dollars <laughs> of his own money into the race, and the other okay. is I think she's the daughter of an insurance company CEO who has close ties to Blue Cross Blue Shield, who have been giving large amounts of money uh, to her campaign. So that that's what. <laughs> well, so so if all of Bernie won the Michigan primary and Bernie's endorsed Abdul. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So if he just can turn out all those primary voters again, yes, I guess that's the challenge. Yes. That that. But 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 one of the weird things was so we I we were on the bus with uh, a guy from the Baffler, um, uh, a Washington Post, <laughs> and a guy from the like Abdul's like I'll I'll take less N plus one coverage and more New York Times coverage. Well, and it was <laughs> like the just, little magazines. But, but the actual thing was not the absence of the of the New York Times, or the, the New York Times weren't there. It was more the absence of Michigan media. Yeah. And one of the things that Abdul talked a lot about was the fact that, like, I think all like a bunch of the Michigan local papers in the last few years have been bought up by a conglomerate and trans and and had their print editions shut down and their newsrooms cut. And as a result, I think there are seven or eight political reporters left in the state. To report oh on everything. all of Michigan politics, it's all a huge of state Michigan too. Politics. It's gigantic. This isn't Rhode Island. <laughs> There's a hundred uh, state uh, house representatives. You know, uh, th- like so. There's nothing. There is no political reporting, and nobody's following the the this is the governor's race this is like the race for the top political office in the country and there weren't any i mean there were you would have like maybe a local news person at some of abdul's press conferences the last one the one i went to in ipsilanti it was the the group i talked i just mentioned plus uh a high school news reporter <laughs> oh wow high paper there's no Ypsilanti paper. The University of Michigan newspaper is like the main newspaper for Ann Arbor, uh, for for Ann Arbor because local local media doesn't exist. This is so dark. <laughs> one of the one of the things I really came away with is if Abdul loses, it will not be because he's uh, too far to the left or because he's a Muslim. It will be because of systemic problems in politics and media it will be because of the fact that there is no media to tell people about the governor's race um it will or to broadcast speeches or to introduce people to the candidates and it will be because of money in politics because he cannot he's just totally unable to match what his opponents are doing so if he loses this is why so many people here are really uh going to be devastated if he loses because it's going to suggest that even if you have an amazing candidate who works all the time and 
who inspires people and who has a who's totally qualified yeah totally qualified you know you still can't do it (laughs) so he better win okay well we're all crossing our fingers back at the current affairs world headquarters and we await uh your return back to hq nathan onward bye bye We're back with segment three. We're all humans here. A segment from our first episode. We're bringing it back. The cultural norm of the very online left is often to rip into our adversaries and purge all impurities. In the recurring segment, we're all humans here. We choose a different path and remember that we are not only fierce warriors for our ideology, but humans, complex, multifaceted, curious, In this segment, we're going to examine the very human quality of heterodoxy, not being a pure avatar of leftism, but rather people who are mostly lefty, but have distinct experiences and paths that lead to some heterodox nooks and crannies. Or to put it another way, we're going to share the most conservative opinion that each of us hold and see if we still hold it after having to say it publicly and hear responses from the other four. Here goes. Who wants to be the brave person to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Lido, um, with your most conservative opinion. Okay. So, so background to this opinion is that once upon a time, I used to work for a social services agency. And um, the, so the agency would be appointed the legal guardian for people who were declared incapacitated by the court. So people who had like severe uh, mental illness and dementia and that kind of thing. And one of the things I did at this job is I had to apply for Medicaid and food stamps for these people and apply and recertify for it. And my interactions with the Medicaid bureaucrats in New York City, the worst experiences. Like they are, and I was doing this, you know, in a different way than most people do because I was doing it in mass as like a college educated person with like all the documents ready. And I still had the worst time trying to get these very sick people that, you know, just health insurance, just the basic health insurance that they needed. And so, and, and, and to be fair, there were one or two bureaucrats who weren't the worst and I would like find them. And so I could like get my damn job done. But it was like, it was incredibly frustrating. And they're, you know, these people, they just, they didn't care. They had no ethic of public service whatsoever. They didn't give a shit about people who were sick. You couldn't do any sob story. Nobody, nobody was interested in that. And they also were really stupid. They didn't really know the process. And there's like, I maybe committed some like light Medicaid fraud. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. But <laughs> it could be, well, it's because it's, you know, you have to. She's going to really need to know statute of limitations now. <laughs> yeah. Just keep saying hypothetically. Hypothetically. I don't know. Not a lawyer. Yeah, because it's such a crazy process and because it's it's so complicated to, like, get all these documents together and prove that people's income, they're poor enough, they're sick enough that they deserve these. So my very conservative opinion is I think the conservative skepticism of bureaucracy is valid extremely valid and i think when we say okay well what we want to do is just like institute this big bureaucracy people are rightfully concerned about that because if you have bureaucrats who don't give a shit and the current crop of bureaucrats for the most part again there are exceptions for the most part don't give a shit and they're not going to start giving a shit unless you give them incentives to give a shit so i think like we have to be really careful when we say, oh, we're going to leave, we're going to leave this up to just like these, these faceless bureaucrats who are going to process your claims. People have, I mean, people have had really bad experiences with, you know, uh, the DMV, or they've had bad experiences with health insurance, like private health insurance, which is another kind of bureaucracy. 
So I do not find this to be a conservative <laughs> opinion. <laughs> God cons- damn it. Conservative opinion is that like the government makes it too hard for poor people to get money <laughs> in food and healthcare. But well, but it's but I okay, fair. Um, no, but, but, but the, the conservative are, opinion are, is you have to think up like the that, the, the yeah. lefty knee jerk thing to say, oh, the government should run X means a thousand people in a building should run yeah. X. A thousand people in a and, building who don't give a fuck about you <laughs> and aren't interested in like moving your case along and we'll just lose shit and we'll completely turn you away uh it just it was funny in listening to your to your conservative opinion later because to me that's like a lovely advertisement advertisement for the libertarian part of libertarian socialism in that um you know someone that was horrified listening to the uh the um imposed work silver bullet sparky um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, on the uh, episode a couple i i have a i don't i didn't it's funny because i didn't immediately think of it as a conservative opinion but i have a deep skepticism of the ability of the government to handle things because bureaucracies are so absurd and painful to deal with and so uh i feel like it's it's just an ad for like further leftism i have a solution no more means-tested programs. <laughs> it would make a big difference. Remove the paperwork. Yeah. Give everybody everything. So much of it was the paperwork and maybe some crimes. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's also like, like here's here's Lida. Like, if everybody who worked processing the paperwork, you know, was in your role instead of just being in the role of processing paperwork, like people might feel a lot more motivated to do mm-hmm. things, right? It's like the bureaucracy kind of removes you from having to feel compassion or empathy or like be kind to people Mm -hmm. and so maybe the answer is just sort of moving moving the process closer to so that you actually feel like you're helping people when you're yeah in those jobs yeah and it's it's funny because there was just sort of this lack of imagination right because there were the few bureaucrats i found who were really good they could imagine that the clients who usually i didn't meet the clients either but they could imagine that these people existed and they could see on a form like okay there's like this 84 year old woman with dementia okay like they could imagine what that's what that person is like and they could say okay yeah right. obviously this person needs care but some people just they just didn't have that capacity to imagine and they just see you know even though they were looking at the same information they just didn't see it at all yeah i mean i think that's generally that we just need to be like closer to each other mm-hmm. in order to have things mm-hmm. be better in the world kind of all around the, the right the right wing has uses the local bureaucracy to take on na- like local government to take on national government so they say isn't it annoying as a small business person to to um to fill out forms to start your business so why don't we deregulate boeing <laughs> and um, or isn't the dmv isn't the dmv annoying so let's cut social security and um so i like the left should take really seriously making the front lines of local government like really pleasant so that our bigger programs can be really good who wants to go next with their conservative opinion i can go next okay um which okay i'm trying to figure out sort of how to how to frame this in a way that actually captures what my opinion and feelings are, but I'm not sure how to do it. But basically, I think that, you know, on the left, there's a lot of talk about um, universal basic income and making sure that benefits are sort of provided to people f- a lot and easily and kind of like Bree just said, you know, like, let's just get rid of means testing. That would solve a lot of problems. I do actually think that when people can get benefits very easily, some people sometimes like that does actually disincentivize them from working and that work can actually be really important and good for people and especially 
for mental health. And I think that it's easy and like I have felt myself on the verge of sort of falling into a sort of numb dependence that I think is really bad. I don't think like the solution to that is necessarily what the conservative solution usually is. Like I don't like work requirements or getting rid of benefits. I don't think that like the solution to that is to have some people starve to death. But I do think that there's some truth to that, that like that work and structure are actually really important for people's lives. I think that structure is absolutely important for people's lives. I don't know that it has to come through work. And you might have heard me mention a little show called Star Trek before. (laughs) What is this show exactly? I've never heard of that show. I think the lesson to be learned from Star Trek is that that everyone doesn't sit around in a collective sloth because nobody has to work for food, for instance. They instead explore the galaxy because they want to, not because they're paid, because it's fun. Or they open a Cajun restaurant in New Orleans, or they become a writer or an intergalactic archaeologist. Like, these are the things that people do. And I don't know that I have such a grim view of human nature that says, if you weren't required to do this to eat and live, meaning work, you know, that people wouldn't do anything at all. I think that there are people who, in, in lieu of other motivations, work seems like the only thing that would be a motivating force, but I think that's a little bit of a lack of imagination on our part. Um, we're talking about completely restructuring a society where we don't have work. I can also imagine a society that has other incentives for people to engage in work-like behaviors or constructive behaviors, should I say, that aren't money. I, I, I think one of the things that we should start with the project of like de-working is we should not think about the alternative to work being like the 20-something chilling out. I think maybe eventually, but it should start with the people who have alternate types of work that are not appreciated as work. So being a mom, being a dad, caring for a sick sibling, getting an education, like the amount of like, I actually think the left should just go hard on like kids should not be working they should be in school you know like and kids and um or caring for an elderly parent or if you're really jazzed about like civics and wanting to like work on public projects in your town like alternate work is half of the story of work ruining people's lives it's not like i think us as 20 somethings and early 30 somethings like we think about like all the like adventures we want to go on but for most people it's either like i have to work while i go to high school or college or i have to work while i'm well i'm like raising my young kid and i don't get to have good times with my kid cuz i'm tired or i have to work while i'm caring for my old adult or i have to work when i'm 60 you know and i'm ready to retire and like that could be that's half the battle is just people who have other work that structures your lives that just isn't paid. We do have kind of a problem right now where we are culturally oriented towards finding value in work and fi- and people really define their value in work. And when you go to a, a wedding and you meet you know people, people ask, the first thing people ask you is, what do you do? I mean, it's such a foundational part of like how you determine what, what, you know, what somebody's like and what they're, you know, and it's how you find your value in society. So it's going to take a, like a while to shift those attitudes to you know it's still like a thing where like a single you know or uh, working um parents um have to apologize especially like uh stay-at-home dads feel like real need to apologize for being stay-at-home dads because it's it's not a job job yeah it, it i i want to get to star trek future you know i do uh, <laughs> but it, we have to it, it is going to take like some generations of 
finding new new types of value and finding new types of meaning. Who wants to go next? Uh, I'll go next. So, I mean, apparently I hold all of these conservative beliefs. <laughs> I want all the Nazis to have jobs. Um, uh, I'm empathetic to the need for work in this current moment. Uh, I got into a, a, a long extended battle with Nathan over my uh, opinion that the International is a bad song. Um, <laughs> But I, I was thinking for a long time about uh, about what um, my most conservative opinion is. And I think it's less of a thought-out opinion and more of just a feeling that pops up every once in a while that, for me, has its origins in the way that in the ways that I was introduced to leftism. And so a lot of my introduction to, to kind of like leftist thinking and leftist, uh, to use Pete's leftist work, praxis, um, <laughs> it, uh, a, lo- a lot of my introduction to that was like super kind of like society is totalizing and capitalism and all these sort of power structures have made people do the things that they don't want to do. And, you know, that's the thing that we're supposed to fight against. And I think holding that view ends up occasionally giving me really essentialist reactions to the way that people operate in the world. And so what I mean by that is like, like my, uh, uh, like my education in feminism, for example, was like very, very much tied to like second wave feminism. And I think there's, I have unlearned that and like, but I think at this point, second wave feminism feels quite conservative and that there are times though where I will have the, a feeling pop up where someone's like, oh, I, where someone who uh, presents as female is like, oh, I really like wearing makeup, and I'll be like, well, that's because of like, you know, the the, the the patriarchal dominance, and you have no agency in that. Or someone that you know is you know socialized as a as, as a guy is like, I really like sports, and I'm like, well, that's just because of like the what society has like made you do. And I think that there's obviously an element of that, but that because of my initial um, induction to leftism had uh, a disrespect for human agency in a sort of society that's based on totalizing hierarchies that occasionally that gut reaction will still pop up. And I try to, you know, mediate that, but I, I think occasionally that that's sort of the way that I um, interact with the world sometimes. So wait, Orin, is your conservative opinion that you do or you don't believe in personal responsibility? <laughs> <laughs> um... I think that I, I I think that I don't at, at all to like a conservative extent. It's the least libertarian part of my libertarian <laughs> socialism. Yeah, no, that uh, it not. I mean, both personal agency and personal responsibility. You know, it it cuts both ways. I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I I'm someone who I had this really great hippy dippy uh, torts and corporations professor in law school. Who I know that's not that's like a contradiction in terms. No, torts is the most lefty. radical area of law. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it he just was, sounds really funny when you say it. Like I want to write an entire article about this guy and how he like genuinely changed my entire worldview, but when I didn't even know it was happening. But one of the things that he talks about a lot, he like slowly indoctrinates you into believing that there's no free will over the course of the year or the semester. And I found it to be a very compelling case and I guess I do subscribe to what you're kind of checking yourself on, Oren, which is this kind of, you know, people are so uh, caught up in their environment or so controlled by their situation in life that it's very difficult for me to hold them individually responsible for any one act. I have a hard time getting away from that. I, I do. I, I hear you when you say, you know, the stuff about wearing makeup or liking sports that, Regardless, even if that isn't about 
free will, there's a point at which if there is no free will, you just have to start deciding that certain things are genuine parts of people's personality. And you can get into a kind of nihilism if you just go all the way into, well, we can't control any of this. So let me just go stab my friend in the face. You know, um, <laughs> we've all thought that. <laughs> I don't thought. think that's. The- <laughs> <laughs> but but like I do I do empathize with you know the kind of the difficulty of like parsing out where those lines are. Mm-hmm. It's funny because my conservative opinion almost was that I'm I'm a big believer in personal responsibility when it comes to human interaction, like on a on an interpersonal <laughs> level. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, because I think people like it, you know, yes, people have like been exposed to horrible things and, you know, they've experienced traumas, but like you still are responsible for how you treat people. And it's funny because I consider that in a conservative opinion and it's exa- the direct opposite of what you consider conservative. So a lot of it is just branding and that they decided, mm-hmm. oh, we own patriotism. We earn, we own personal responsibility. When a lot of these things are not partisan, that we just haven't decided to brand ourselves in that way because those beliefs aren't necessarily constructive to some of our broader Mm -hmm. goals and our broader narratives. I mean, they might be if they weren't so wrapped up in the conservative branding and like the way that they've been packaged and framed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I I have a hard time thinking of Orrin's conservative opinions as particularly conservative because that like, (laughs) I just think that like they, so like the, like the, the personal responsibility thing, like I actually believe that we have a deep ethical, uh, duty to to one another and so i do believe in that little element of personal responsibility i think i more meant on the like you know you have cognitive dissidence if you're doing anything that sort of is is tied to the hierarchy and sort of that can show up in uh misogynist ways and it can and and those i think you're, you're, of you're as skeptical conservative of, elements you're skeptical of false consciousness yes i'm skeptical of, that's what i meant not i didn't mean cognitive dissidence i meant false consciousness <laughs> i but i believe that i react by thinking people have false consciousness but i think that is actually a even if it has its origins in some leftism is a conservative way to view the world we'll end up, we'll end on that we'll leave uh brie to be last to do her conservative opinion but i'll do mine now mine is that i'm much more of a proponent of localism than the average lefty is and david brooks just wrote an article saying like local power is sometimes better than like national distant power and he just got dragged and dragged and dragged on Twitter because they're like, oh, localism was racist in the mid-century and distant power like did Brown versus Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act. But I just think that there's so many examples on in the opposite way where there was horrible right-wing power on the national level and there are wonderful places like Vermont and weird funky towns and places where they're creating alternatives using federalism, which lefties are so skeptical of, to like do experiments to create new things. And I just think we should it, embrace it a lot more and at the very least see it as neutral um, and to thicken it out a bit more. I think some of the institutions of localism that lefties uh, dis- like take for granted are very important family faith, neighborhood, union are examples of local institutions that are not top-down, that do a lot of work. Um, And I'll just give one little anecdote to just flesh this out a little bit more, which is I worked on prison reform with a lot of people that got out of prison, and almost every single person that was thriving after prison, when I asked them, what is the number one factor that is the reason you're thriving after prison? And they said, my sister still loves me. 
And I said, you can't do a public policy that creates sisters. You know, there's no government program that will create sisters and sisters are created by an institution in society. Also clones. And And that institution is something conservatives talk a lot about and lefties almost never talk about, like worrying about the disintegration of family, you know, and so that's mine. I don't even think that that's that conservative. (laughs) None of us are conservatives. No, like lefty municipalism. I mean, the family thing. I think is 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 a thing. I I tried to go deeper to get to something that was that's been branded as conservative. But as far as like lefty municipalism, I agree. I think there's like much more opportunity for direct democracy on the local scale. Um, Yes, there have been you know times where it has been used. poorly but i would much rather have institutions that have localized and less power than the federal government there's a great book called uh, that nathan would mention if he was on so i'll channel him um it's called uh human scale by kirkpatrick sale which has a lovely um <laughs> right and uh about the the beautiful thing the you know beautiful element of like small things and like local control and that uh, also a Nathan site, Christopher Alexander, uh, this sort of lefty architect, talks a lot about sort of democratic and local control of, you know, building buildings and planning cities in the way that uh, facilitates the best modes of living for the locality. And so I, I think that this is like actually quite a left position. I think that you're right, obviously, that family has been branded uh, as right wing and, and would be interested in, in discussing that, though. Yeah. I mean, I like I understand why david brooks got so much heat online for that because like a lot of america i mean it's it's part of the same thing right which is that local power is the power that can really like touch and affect people sort of most directly and most powerfully so if you have really racist local institutions which most of the country has had for most of our history that can have really really bad results and even if you have you know, your your federal power, which is more removed, it doesn't have to be that good to seem like really good. And and it's not just with race, right? Because you I mean, there's this trope of the petty tyrant, which plays out in all kinds of ways where like mm. homeowners associations can be just so like tyrannical and terrible and mm-hmm. ruin people's lives in ways that you kind of think of them as like, well, it's just a group of neighbors who kind of like has <laughs> has an idea of the way that they want to sue things. you and you like paint your right. shingles. Like, exactly. Or like foreclose on your house if you like can't afford the $300 assessment or whatever. I, I think that's kind of that's kind of also what can make them really good and powerful, right? Is that if you if you allow those things or if you build those things in order to be forces for good, like they actually do really have the most direct contact with people and with people's daily lives. I think it's just easy for them to swing either way. Mm -hmm. It's funny how many of our conservative opinions are ultimately about branding and about terms that like the conservatives have claimed and and concepts that they've claimed that could and should be, you know, left and libertarian socialist ideas. Yeah. You just have to sort of reclaim them. That branding part is maybe selfishly the most interesting part of politics to me. You know, I am now a writer and I started writing because I was so upset about the messaging that was happening in 2016. And it, this feeling like, why can't anybody just say this in this way that it's so obviously, obviously appealing? Because I know what the narratives are in my head and why I believe what I believe. And to me, it makes perfect sense. And I, I have this like perhaps naive feeling that if everyone could just hear me say it the way that I believe it, we would all be on the same page because we're all good people and we all want the same thing. And so like these kinds of conversations, I just want to say in a little current affairs pat on the back, I find to be so fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Brie, what is, let's finish us off with your conservative opinion. I hope it's really like awful. (sighs) (laughs) This is going to come back to haunt your future political career. (laughs) 
The problem is that I feel like I am always kind of siding with the right in a lot of the things uh, that I write. Like, kind of my shtick is to see the sliver of uh, genuine complaint that they have and then to mediate it with, you know, having a conscience and a soul and advancing the criticism in a way that I think is constructive. So uh, my boyfriend low-key calls me like a member of the alt-right all the time, and it's a lovely term of endearment. <laughs> but I guess I was trying to sort through all of these things and pick one, just one. <laughs> and I think, I think that what I would like to talk about is virtue signaling. So I know that there's a bad faith critique from the right about virtue signaling, and they say that anytime anybody expresses a concern about some moral thing that's happening in the world, they accuse us of not really caring, and then it's just about virtue. And I think that that's a gross overstatement of what's happening. But I do see, especially online, that there is this impulse to take positions that sound really good because they sound really left without really interrogating what the broader implications of them are. So in the context we were just talking about with the Me Too, um, the idea that we have to banish people forever and, you know, I'm not going to watch whatever movie it is because, you know, this person did this thing, which may be appropriate in any given instance. But there's a sometimes an unwillingness to have the conversation about what are we going to do next and what does rehabilitation look like. And I see this a lot when I talk about, you know, whether or not to ha- have a politics that includes people who might have voted for Trump, right? Should we talk to the Trump voter? I think a lot of the response to that is rooted in, well, you know, if, I'm a better, I'm a better, more, more liberal person than you if I declare that I would never lower myself to talk to these people. Um, when I think that, that having that kind of really draconian stance that there is nobody in America who voted for Trump that's worth talking to um, is really anti-humanistic and denies the lived reality of like actual human beings who are living in circumstances that we should be trying to lift them out of regardless of what their politics are. And it strikes me, I see it coming a lot from good white liberals online who I think sometimes want to like posture. They, they have more of an investment in posturing about how they're not they're I'm anti-racist. So I would never talk to a Trump voter. And I think as a black person that I sometimes have more flexibility and being able to, to talk about these things because I don't need to virtue signal in those ways to protect myself. And other, in other contexts, I do feel myself like wanting to virtue signal more because I'm like, I don't have LGBT street cred because I'm, you know, straight cis woman. So I I find myself, am I retweeting this? Am I liking this? Because I want to signal to everybody that like I'm on your team. And I understand that impulse. And I'm not saying it's like a bad thing to do. But when it comes in conflict with, I think, broader politics, like electoral politics, that would, you know, be better served by having a more broad view of who who your messaging should be targeting, or who your messaging should include at, at any rate, then I think that we need to like, take a step back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> have you seen that W? Like, you know who does that a lot? W. Camus Bell? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, you're like, right. You, yeah, is, he, is, is he an example of, like, not virtue signaling? Because he's just, like, he, he just goes to these racist places and is like, hey, what's oh, up? Oh, that's interesting. So I do think that because he's black, he's able to go to these racist places. But I, well, I was, so I was actually watching him. I was in the airport last weekend. And so he was on all the CNN channels. And I, I don't love his approach. Because he likes to kind of go into the environment, and this is based on a very superficial airport screaming of his work. <laughs> um, the, just, the appropriate place to watch CNN. The airport. <laughs> the 
<laughs> as far as I know, the only place people watch CNN. <laughs> yeah, I was it's, the, like, it's the it's the Aban Pan of of cable news networks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he seems to go to the place and then basically say these people are terrible. It doesn't seem to be a real substantive engagement and i think that partly is if you go to the worst place with the worst people yeah the people are terrible and that's you know the the conversation is often framed as like should we talk to nazis or should we talk to the alt-right but the conversation really is you know should we talk to the 75 year old grandmother that i met at the airport in kentucky last weekend who gave me a ride to my hotel and in that 10 minute you know she's a trump voter and in the 10 minutes we were in the car with her adult daughter that she told me about you know all of the financial problems they are dealing with and the insurance they don't have. And I talked to them about the Bernie rally that I was going to. We're able to, we're very open. We're very, very open to a political message that centered uh, a right to health care, a right to free education for their kids, and a right to a living wage. Nobody in that car gave me a moment of pushback on any of those points. Okay, everyone. Thank you for sharing your most conservative opinion. I feel like we're all more humans here. Let's do our sound off. Light a gold. Bye. Sparky Abraham. Goodbye. Orin Nimney. Goodbye, everyone. Brianna Joy Gray. Bye, guys. I'm your host, Pete Davis. Good night, everybody. Let's do footnotes. Roseanne Barr's childhood was even a bit wilder than Bree stated. She grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, in an Orthodox Jewish family, but her family kept their Jewish heritage a secret from their Mormon neighbors. Barr has stated, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, I was a Jew. Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday afternoon, we were Mormons. However, at 16, she was hit by a car and suffered a traumatic brain injury. Her behavior changed so much that she spent eight months at a mental hospital. Two years later, she went on a vacation to Colorado and never returned home. According to multiple sources, Michigan gubernatorial candidate Sri Thanadar was still deciding whether to run as a Republican or not as of last year. He once owned a $6.5 million mansion and is credibly accused of abandoning over 170 dogs and monkeys after his Oxford, New Jersey research facility was shut down in 2010. Don't worry, animal welfare groups were able to climb the fence and feed the animals, and the dogs and monkeys were eventually placed in various animal sanctuaries by court order. Though many local bureaucracies are unpopular, people still love the post office. A 2014 Gallup survey found that about 70% of people rated the post office either excellent or good. Some fun internal numbers, the post office is least popular among men over 50, and most popular among women under 50. Speaking of virtue signaling, there is an entire area of study in evolutionary biology called signaling theory, which is the study of signals given between individual animals to each other. Signal theorists divide signals into honest signals, which actually demonstrate their underlying message, and dishonest signals, which inaccurately demonstrate their underlying message. An example of an honest signal would be a springbok's vertical jump. If you can jump that high, it's probably not worth chasing you. An example of a dishonest signal would be the male fiddler crab's large fighting claw. It's not actually that strong of a claw. If you have too many dishonest signalers, the signaling system collapses. So in short, be a springbok, not a male fiddler crab. Special thanks to Lyda Gold for writing the amusements for each episode. If you want to support us and get access to all of our bonus episodes over at the Bird Feed, become a patron at patreon.com slash currentaffairs. If you like the audio version of Current Affairs, you'll love the physical version. 
the beautiful print edition, which you can subscribe to at currentaffairs.org. Our theme music is The Gherkin Train by Joe Smith and The Spicy Pickles. This has been Current Affairs. Current Affairs.